This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. This episode is brought to you by Lola V. Lola V is an award-winning hair care line by none other than Jennifer Aniston. They offer clean, plant-powered products for every hair type and texture. I just did my whole hair care routine with all the products the other night, and I am obsessed. Along with incredible shampoo and conditioner, they have an intensive repair treatment that you can use once a week. They also have a lightweight hair oil. There's a leave-in treatment, and there's also a glossing detangling which I need because lately I want to do my hair in like a slicked back look, but my hair is too frizzy. Get 15% off Lola V with the code MOMROOM at www.lolav.com slash MOMROOM and Lola V is L-O-L-A-V-I-E. Tomorrow, only on Disney+. Plus. My name is Taylor. Welcome to the Eras Tour. Experience Taylor Swift's record-breaking Eras Tour. Swift, the Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with four additional acoustic songs. Streaming tomorrow, only on Disney+. Plus. Welcome to the Mom Room Podcast. My name is Renee Rena, and I am definitely the mom friend you have always wanted. Welcome back to Tuesday's episode. It is a great episode. They're always great, aren't they? Or am I biased? On today's episode, I am speaking with Dr. Melanie McNally. She is a clinical psychologist that helps teens and young adults manage stress and anxiety and develop coping tools. Obviously, the pandemic has affected our society around the world. Most notably, we're seeing a rise in mental health issues and their physical and emotional repercussions, especially in our teenagers. We also talk a lot about social media in this episode. If you think about it, so many teens were unable to live life how they normally would, you know, hanging out with friends, going to school. And so what that resulted in was lots of young kids, teens, young adults, spending more time on their phone and spending more time on social media. Social media and phones are not going anywhere. So it's kind of unrealistic to think, well, when my kids are teenagers, they're just not going to be on their phone at all. You know, I'm not going to allow them to have a phone. We get into that. And I ask her specifically, you know, if you had teens right now, what would your boundaries with regard to the cell phone and social media be for them? So she explains that. And Milo is three and a half and I'm already thinking about when he's a teenager and wants a phone, like what is the appropriate age for kids to have phones? And oftentimes we as parents want kids to have phones for safety reasons. So they're just a part of our life. It's the same with screens, you know, like laptops, iPads. It is just a part of our life now. So how can we incorporate it into our family's lives in a healthy way? What are some boundaries that we should have? So in this episode, we talk about anxiety in young adults, in teens, what to look for, when you should seek help, how parents can help their teens manage anxiety and build self-confidence, the impact of social media on teens' mental health. Also, what boundaries should we be setting for social media and cell phone use? And then she gives us great tools that teens and young adults can use to manage their anxiety. This was a great episode, very eye-opening, very informative. If you know someone who has kids who are a little bit older than, let's say, toddlers, it would be worthwhile to send this one to them just so that they know what to look out for um, because anxiety and stress is on the rise right now in kids. So please enjoy this episode with Dr. Melanie McNally. To start, I would love to hear a little bit about your training and why you got into the specific area of anxiety in teens and young adults. 
Yeah, you know, I really wanted to provide the mental health support that I so desperately needed when I was a teenager. I grew up in a really toxic and dysfunctional home. And on top of that, I had really bad anxiety. And, you know, I didn't know how to manage it all. So I held everything inside. So I really wanted to be a role model to provide mental health support to younger generations. And so first I went and I got a master's degree in counseling, but I decided that I really needed to learn more. So I went back to get a doctorate in clinical psych. And I've worked in the mental health field since 2005, but specifically really focused on tweens, teens, and young adults since 2013. So would you say you knew that that's what you wanted to do since you were young? Well, I knew I wanted to work with with younger people. It's funny, originally I actually thought I wanted to be a high school counselor And that was always my plan until I went and shadowed a high school counselor and saw what the day was like, (laughs) how busy and just so many things that they are navigating and dealing with on a daily basis and decided that that was that was not for me. So I ended up going into more of the, the counseling route. So I did change course a little bit. And so are you mostly doing private practice or do you work like within an organization? No. So I've been on my own in private practice since, well, I've been in group practices since 2014, 2015. I've had my own private practice since 2015. I used to have a brick and mortar practice where I saw clients in the office. And then I started to transition over to teletherapy prior to the pandemic. That was already the route I was going because I was starting to realize that A lot of the teens I worked with, they opened up when there was a screen between us. They felt less vulnerable and were more willing to share. Yeah, so I was already starting to go in the direction of teletherapy, and then the pandemic hit, and then obviously just everything, you know, switched over, and then I ended up closing my, my actual office at the start of 2021. So now I just do teletherapy online and then I have self-guided programs and a therapy boot camp too. So I have other programs available for people who aren't necessarily ready for individual therapy. Would you say that it's mostly the parents that are bringing their children to you or is it sometimes the teens themselves that are wanting to seek treatment? It's mostly parents who reach out to me, but oftentimes when the parents reach out to me, they'll say, my kid is asking for a therapist or, you know, my kid really needs some extra, they're saying that they need some support and some help. So a lot of times it's initiated by the kid, but the parent will do the research and and look out for somebody. I have had some teens find me on Instagram because I do have a professional public Instagram account. So I have had teens find me that way. And then they'll contact me and, and say that they want to work together. Or they want to do one of my online programs. And so then, um, you know, I'll kind of start the process with them to get parental approval and all of that sort of thing. But I would say the majority is, is parents reaching out. I'm not familiar with therapy when it comes to young adults or teens, but is it more of like a family therapy? Are the parents involved at all or are you strictly just working with the teens? With teens, it's mostly working just with the teens. It's not family therapy. I'm not a family therapist, so there would be family therapists that would work with teens and families. And sometimes I'll refer some of the kids I work with to family therapy in addition to individual therapy. But a lot of the the work that I do is with the teens themselves. And I really honor confidentiality. It's a really important part of the therapeutic process. So it's really important for them to know that they have a private place where they can share, you know, where I'm not their teacher, where they have to worry about getting a bad grade. I'm not their parent, where they have to worry about getting in trouble. I'm not a friend from school who's going to gossip and talk about what they told me behind their back. So it's really important that they have that confidentiality. But there always are disclaimers to that, you know, if they're talking about wanting to hurt themselves or someone else, or if there are certain clinical issues that come up, then parents need to be made aware of that. But it does depend on the age and the clinical issues that are present as well. So with some of the younger kids, I do involve parents a lot more. I'll bring them in at the end of the session just to kind of give them an overview of what we're working on 
or if the kids are the kid themselves is dealing with some really significant issues that I'm very concerned about, then I will have a lot more contact with the parent or parents at the end of the session. But I do have the teens present when I meet with parents so they know exactly what's being shared and they can hear that so they still feel like they're, not everything is being shared with their parent. And this is a random question, but if the teens are primarily having issues with their parents, if that's, you know, like one of the things that they're anxious about or having trouble with, how do you navigate that? Or is that a situation where you might refer them to a family therapist? You know, it depends because sometimes the they think it's an issue with the parent, but really it's an issue with emotional regulation or maybe it's really an issue with time management or organization that's causing some conflict with the parent. So sometimes, you know, they'll they'll come in because maybe they're not getting along with their parents and so I'm trying to get at the root cause of what's causing that. And if it's something different than the actual connection with the parent, then we will work on that specific thing. So if it's emotional dysregulation, for example, chances are it's not just with the parent that that's occurring. It's probably happening with friends as well. And so trying to figure that out and then working on building emotional regulation tools If it does turn out where there's just a lot of conflict at home and there's a lot of conflict between parent and child, then yeah, I might refer them to a family therapist to work on those specific issues together because then the parent really needs to be involved more. So in your opinion, based on what you see in your practice over the last few years, has there been a big increase in anxiety and stress in teenagers or is it that we are studying it more or we're more open about talking about mental health? You know, there definitely has been an increase and that's not even just anecdotal. You know, so I'm located in the United States and in the U.S. at the end of 2021, the Surgeon General issued a a report, which was a collaboration of data collection from a bunch of different agencies. And they found that symptoms of anxiety and depression doubled during the pandemic in the United States. But the reality is those mental health issues were already on the rise prior to the pandemic. So we were already seeing an increase in cases and then the pandemic just caused those issues to double. And if you think about you know, is it just being reported more? Is it talked about more? But if you look at the reality of the state of our world, youth today are dealing with so much more information that is really stressful, you know, and and they're aware of this information. It's completely different than, I'm not sure of your age, but, you know, I'm 45. And when I was growing up, I only knew what was going on in the world if, you know, my parents had the news on at night or if a social studies teacher talked about it in school. Now they get information about climate change, racial injustice, income inequality, gun violence. They're getting these issues delivered right to their phone through Twitter and Snapchat and Instagram and TikTok. I mean, I can't even tell you how many teens who get their news information from TikTok. So they are seeing these huge issues that we didn't get when we were younger. We just weren't aware of them. And then on top of current events, they're also getting a lot of, you know, photoshopped or altered images where people are using filter upon filter and only showing their highlight reels. So they're constantly getting this message that they're not good looking enough, they're not doing enough, they're not social enough, they're not popular enough. So I think the combination of the the highlight reel and the onslaught of information is contributing to a, a big rise of anxiety and depression for, for kids globally. I feel like all the things you just mentioned, I think about all those things, even for adults. Like, I feel like those things are difficult for adults to navigate in our lives because we too use our phones all the time. And so I can just imagine how teenagers feel because I think adults struggle with that. 
I will be 37 next week. And so I got social media when I was in my undergrad. And I always think about parenting because my son, he's only three years old right now. But even me, I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm nervous for when he is the age where he gets a phone because it's like you're opening up the entire world. And like you said, everyone's highlight reel and it's in the palm of your hands. And so how can parents notice in their own children that maybe they're struggling with something like social media or anxiety at school or in relationships? Are there specific things that they can look out for if their teen is not comfortable and hasn't opened up to them about it? Yeah, you know, so some of the symptoms of anxiety, well, kind of the hallmark symptom is constant worrying. So if a parent notices that their teen is worrying a lot about what other people think or about doing something embarrassing or they're worrying about the future, family finances or worrying about tests, if they have social worries, you know, where they're worrying about other people laughing at them or being embarrassed or public performance. So if a parent notices a lot of worries, if they notice that their teen appears tense or restless a lot, so maybe the teen appears jittery, they're jumpy, they're easily startled, or maybe they complain about always being stressed out or feeling on edge. If the parent notices a lot of vague physical health complaints, so things like frequent stomach aches or headaches where there's really no reason for them. I can't tell you how many parents where they brought their, their kid in and if they've gone, you know, they've had exams by the pediatrician, they've gone to a GI doctor and had the scope done because the stomach complaints are that constant. And they've had to rule out everything to get to the point of realizing that it's actually anxiety. If the teen does avoidance behaviors, so if they are avoiding, you know, scary but age-appropriate movies or TV shows, if they're always trying to do things that they think other people will like, but maybe they don't really even want to be doing those things themselves, if they are rigid or inflexible. So, for example, a parent might notice this if their kid gets really anxious or irritable when things don't go according to plan. Or maybe their kid has difficulty transitioning from one activity to another, or they're resistant to going outside their comfort zone. Those are signs of rigidity. And then we've got, you know, our general problems of anxiety, like trouble falling asleep or staying asleep. So if they're talking about how tired they are in the morning, even though you know they went to bed at a decent time, you know that they don't have any devices in their room, maybe they're waking a lot during the night and they can't fall back asleep. If a parent notices changes in eating habits where they're eating a lot more or a lot less than usual, that can be a sign of anxiety. Or just even perfectionism, if a parent notices that their kid has a really hard time when things aren't perfect. You know, the they're constantly erasing and rewriting the same letter over and over again for a younger kid. Or a teen, you know, might have to have the perfect outfit to be able to go to school. So those can all be signs of a teen who's struggling with anxiety. In schools, do they teach about any of these things? Because I'm just thinking when I went through school, it's not like we learned about what anxiety is and what it feels like or like depression or is that something that is in schools now? Because I'm just thinking like so many teens probably experience these things but don't know that it could be anxiety. Yeah, you know, I think it depends on the the district and, you know, the school that a child attends. Because I do have a lot of teens where they get social-emotional learning as part of their education curriculum. So they'll have a social worker who will actually come into the classroom once a week, maybe. And they're teaching about mental health or they're teaching about anxiety and depression in health classes in high school, I have some kids where they're learning about mental health as part of their health class requirement. So I think it does depend. I don't know if it's like a requirement, but I think more and more schools are starting to integrate that into curriculum because they are noticing that this is a really 
important topic and we need to educate kids so they know it's anxiety or they know that they can get help and support that they don't have to go through this alone. This episode is brought to you by Magic Spoon. You guys know I have been very intentional with what we've been eating lately. I'm looking at protein, I'm looking at sugar content, and avoiding things like artificial ingredients or colorings. Milo used to always want pancakes or waffles in the mornings, and now he is getting into cereal, and I'm so excited because Magic Spoon is the perfect option. Their variety pack has four flavors, cocoa, fruity, frosted, and peanut butter. They have zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, and only four to five grams of carbs per serving. They're made with wholesome ingredients, no artificial flavors or dyes, and I'm just so happy that he's getting a good amount of protein before he goes off to school. And it's a great snack for me and my husband too, because 13 to 14 grams of protein in the cereal, now you add a high protein milk, you're set. That is such a high protein snack or meal. I should also mention that it is gluten-free, grain-free, and soy-free. So go to magicspoon.com slash momroom to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use our promo code momroom at checkout to save $5 off your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. So try a delicious bowl of Magic Spoon cereal today at magicspoon.com slash momroom and use the code momroom to save $5. Thank you, Magic Spoon, for sponsoring this episode. This episode is brought to you by Little Spoon. It is 2024. As busy parents, it's hard to completely overhaul our lives, but what we can do is make small changes that will make our lives easier. And that is where Little Spoon comes in. Their goal is to make keeping your kid healthy feel like the easiest part of your day so that you can cut through all the drama of mealtime. Little Spoon offers baby blends, biteables, and plates. So baby blends is fresh, organic baby food. They have single ingredients, but also multi-textured purees to take the stress out of starting solids. Biteables make the transition to finger foods easy because they are cut perfectly to size, which promotes self-feeding. And of course, all the biteables are healthy, balanced, and free of artificial junk. And then there are plates for your toddlers and your bigger kids. They are meals that are free of all the bad stuff. They taste amazing. Even the pickiest eaters will love them. They have things like hidden veggie mac and cheese, chicken nuggets, and adventurous things like pot stickers, gnocchi, and more. Little Spoon also has smoothies and build-it-yourself lunches. Did I mention it all comes right to your door? It is super flexible, so easy, and everything stores right in the fridge and freezer. You can pick up the menu and change up what you order every single time. The price is right. The quality is unmatched. You and your kids will love it. It's a huge win-win for your family. Simplify your kids' mealtime with 30% off your first order. Go to littlespoon.com slash momroom and enter our code momroom at checkout to get 30% off your first Little Spoon order. I also wonder about social media awareness, like teaching kids how to consume social media in a healthy way and understanding that it's highlight reels and that it's filters. And is that something that you have heard of people teaching in school or is that not even heard of? I know that's something I've heard of from individual teachers. So I'll have some teens where they'll they'll talk about a teacher who will really take time out of their regular lesson to talk about something going on on social media, some trend, and they might point out the filters that were used or what was photoshopped. So I don't think that's something that they're regularly educating kids on, but it I agree that that is essential because I even have kids where they'll talk about they're getting their news information, like I said earlier, from TikTok, but it might be from a celebrity. And so maybe it's a celebrity who's talking about their own opinion on some sort of current event. 
And they're taking that opinion as a new source. And so I know some schools have done some education on looking for credible news sources and teaching them how to seek out news information that's high in fact, but low in opinion, and how to recognize that. But I definitely think that that's something we need more of. And I, like you said earlier, adults struggle with these same sort of things. I think adults need a lot of education on that too, you know, where they need to learn that just because something's shared on Facebook doesn't mean it's valid. It doesn't mean it's reliable. You actually need to check the source of the information. With the amount that social media like how much we use it in our everyday lives, there should be an entire course for children on social media awareness and how to consume it properly. So if a parent feels like their child might be struggling with anxiety, is there a specific way or tools that you could say like how they can approach their child and open up a conversation about it? Yeah, you know, I think the the first thing is parents want to just make sure that they're, in general, creating an open and non-judgmental environment where teens feel comfortable sharing things. So what I always encourage parents to do is to monitor how you talk about yourself and also how you talk about other people. Because if you are talking about other people in a really judgmental way, shaming somebody for the, you know, maybe someone who put on weight or, you know, maybe you didn't do well at something that happened at work and you're, you know, talking about how dumb you are. Your kids are picking up that information and now they're going to feel judged on a subconscious level. They're thinking, okay, I can't share if, you know, if my body's changing or if I didn't do well on a test, I'm not going to be able to share that because, you know, that's obviously something that mom has a really strong opinion on and isn't going to approve of in me. So we want to just make sure that we're doing that on an ongoing basis. But then just like a, a thing to do if you notice that your kid is exceptionally anxious on a day, clarify with them when you start listening. So right at the start of the conversation, you know, are you, do you want me to listen or are you going to want some help with problem solving? Doing that at the the start of the conversation is a total game changer because it gives them the opportunity to decide, like, do I actually want some help from you or am I just trying to vent? And then it helps parents know too what their role is here in this conversation. And ultimately, you know, when it comes to problem solving, or when it comes to managing anxiety, you know, we have to let kids make their own mistakes. And I know sometimes that can be really hard for parents. You can see a very clear path forward. You can see the choice that they're making and you know five steps ahead all of the issues that they're gonna run into, but they ultimately need to figure that out on their own. So as long as you're there to guide them and kind of keep them safe, you know, it's important to let them make those mistakes too. If a teenager is really anxious about something specific, is it good to not push them, but like I think about, let's say your child is really, really anxious about public speaking. They don't want to do it. They're in high school and they try and, like you said, use avoidance tactics to get out of it. Is that something that you should encourage them to do or do you just let them avoid it? Because I know it's difficult for parents to see their child struggle with something. So it would be difficult to encourage them to do it because you're nervous yourself that something bad is going to happen. And then they're going to think to themselves like, see, I knew I shouldn't have done this. How would you handle a situation like that? That's such a good question. And I think that's such an important question because, you know, parents have to look at they, they know their child's comfort zone really well. And so parents know if something, generally parents are aware of when they're pushing their kid too hard. You know, when we think of a comfort zone, so let's say with public speaking, think of it as a bubble, you know, and they might have their, their bubble for public speaking where they're really comfortable. Maybe it's talking to family, a few close friends, maybe really small groups. 
And then you look at what's outside of that bubble and thinking of the things that are outside of that bubble in layers. And what we want to do is we want to stretch that comfort bubble a little bit to the next layer. We don't want to stretch it 10 layers out because now we're going to we're going to burst that bubble and like you said it's going to probably be disastrous and the kids going to be like, "See, I told you I couldn't do this." And and now we've just kind of shut down anything from them ever wanting to do anything in public again. But if you know what is a stretch, what is going to stretch that bubble further, but it's not going to burst it. So maybe auditioning for the school play, that might be five layers out where that is going to just push them way too hard. But maybe them raising their hand in class and answering a question, maybe that's going to stretch the bubble enough where they get some practice, they see that they can do something, they've now stretched their comfort bubble a little bit further, and then they can stretch it, you know, keep practicing stretching it further and further. So if it's something like they have a a presentation, they might have to build up to it, you know, to if they know they have a presentation in two weeks, then parents might want to encourage them start, you know, raising your hand in class, so you get comfortable talking in front of the room. Now, maybe parents can help them, like, let's do some practice. Let's have a couple of friends over and you can practice giving some speeches or talks in front of some people and we'll we'll practice making the group bigger and bigger so they start getting comfortable. Because we ultimately, we don't want to avoid the things that are really scary to us, the things that we have to do that are really scary. We want to avoid avoidance because then all we're doing is we're feeding the anxiety and making it worse. What is your take on, because I know a lot of kids will start, whether it be like a sport, an instrument in their early childhood, and they continue it into their teens. And maybe it's something that they really excel at and they're really good at it. And their parents are super proud of them. But then when they get into their teen years, they want to quit. So it could be like playing the piano or a sport. Because I feel like this devastates parents because they're like, oh, you could get a scholarship, like you're so good at this, but the teen is not interested anymore and they don't want to do it. How should parents navigate that situation? Yeah, it's funny that you you bring that up because I have some parents who are struggling this with, with this right now. You know, it's totally normal for, for kids to sh- change interests. I mean, it's completely normal for a kid to love playing the piano and then to get older and to find the piano. Maybe it's not as boring or or it's not as challenging. They're just not as interested. Interests change and develop and shift. And sometimes people need breaks and, and sometimes they need to quit them altogether. That is completely normal teen behavior. So I think with some things, you know, parents have to to have, you know, if they have an open, non-judgmental kind of relationship where they can talk to their teen about things, then that's great because now they can see, you know, have a conversation about why they really want to quit piano. Is it a time thing? You know, is piano, do they have to meet with their piano teacher on days when like maybe their friends are hanging out? So maybe there's something that could actually be problem solved so that they still want to play piano. Or is it a real genuine shift where they're just not interested in it anymore? Or maybe they're not interested in piano, but they're interested in music. So maybe now we can shift to something else that's still in the musical realm. It's just not playing the piano. Or maybe they want to explore a whole new interest. Maybe now they're interested in dance or softball. And that's okay, too, to completely shift later in life. I think people get really preoccupied that we need to stick with something throughout all of childhood and throughout all of teen years in order to be really successful. But that's not realistic. And that's not necessarily healthy. Yeah. And I feel like as you get older and continue with something like a sport or an instrument, it becomes harder and maybe not as fun anymore. You know, I think as a kid, you start something for fun. And then as you get older and excel at it, it's not fun anymore. So it makes sense that things would change in the teenage years and interests would change. 
I wanted to ask, what are some strategies that parents can use to help their teens manage anxiety and build self-confidence? You know, I think it comes down to parents modeling some really good mental health habits on a daily basis so that you are preaching you're you're teaching what you're preaching. You're kind of doing you're you're telling them to do the things that you yourself are doing. So if we want kids to manage anxiety by learning how to meditate, for example, it's really good if parents also are using meditation as their own stress reduction tool. Or if we want teens to have an extracurricular, because we know that exercise or having something creative to do, we know that those are really good mental health habits and help reduce anxiety. It's great if parents also are exercising or they have their own extracurricular or they're, you know, playing in a band with some friends for fun or they take a painting class. So if parents can model these good mental health habits, then you have a really good avenue to help your kids because you're doing what you want. You're doing what you're telling them to do. So, you know, and just some other things to kind of help them with general anxiety. We want to teach them to shut off devices at a certain time each night. We want to have boundaries around devices because we know that being on screens all the way up until bedtime impacts our sleep. And sleep is a foundational part of good mental health. If our sleep is poor, we're more likely to be irritable. We're more likely to be anxious. So turning off devices at a certain time, like I mentioned earlier, engaging in exercise. We know that exercise, if we exercise, you know, four times a week, 30 to 45 minutes each time, just moderate exercise, just getting our heart rate slightly elevated, it has the same impact on the brain as taking an antidepressant. So if we can teach them to incorporate that into their daily routine, that that can also just be a way to proactively manage anxiety in general. parent would like their teenager to speak to a therapist about anxiety, how can they approach them with that idea? Because I feel like mental health, there's still a little bit of stigma around it, and it must be difficult for parents to bring that up with their child, that maybe you should speak to a therapist. Like, is there a way that they can present it to them that maybe doesn't sound daunting. Yeah, it's, you know, finding wherever the teen's buy-in is going to be. So even if it's not necessarily why you think they need to see a therapist, maybe a parent thinks they need to see a therapist because they just, they're, they're really anxious. But the teen doesn't think they're anxious. Maybe instead the teen is just constantly fighting with friends. So that's their buy-in. So if that's a problem for them, always fighting with friends, then the parent might use that as, hey, this seems like you know, you're really struggling with this and I don't always know how to help you with this. This is really kind of outside my, my area. Let's find somebody who you've got who's gonna kind of guide you and support you in this. It's not mom or dad where you're gonna maybe be embarrassed to tell us certain things that are going on. It's your own private place to talk. And that's kind of a way to get them in the door. And then once they've, you know, kind of worked on this one thing that got them in the door, then likely, you know, the therapist is going to see some of the other symptoms that likely is the real reason behind getting them in for therapy if anxiety is present. And then those might be things to start working on. But it's kind of figuring out what's going to, where's their buy-in and working with them at that point, working with them from where they're at, and then building on it. Okay, let's get back to social media. What are some things that parents can do to help their child have a healthy relationship with social media? Especially, like, are there certain boundaries that you think parents should set when it comes to their child and phones? Yeah, you know, 
When we think of, yeah, social media and phones, we kind of think of just the the two hand in hand. But one thing is we want to help them build self-awareness around device use and to, so they can figure out what boundaries need to be set. So asking them, you know, to notice when they're picking up their phone, are they doing it because they're bored, because they need a distraction? Are they feeling lonely? Because we don't want to just pick up our phone as a way to deal with boredom or loneliness. That's not a, a healthy coping mechanism. So building that self-awareness there, even a self-awareness around posting on social media, you know, how would you feel if that post got zero likes? Or how would you feel if your teacher or your coach saw that post so that they're becoming more self-aware about what they're posting, why, when they're picking up their phone, why, having boundaries about when phones should be used and shouldn't be used, I, it's perfectly acceptable to say no no devices should be in the bedroom, ultimately. And I know I get a lot of pushback from people when I suggest this, but it's too tempting. If we have a phone in our room, it is way too tempting to scroll all the way until we go to bed. It's too tempting to look at it if we can't sleep. So let's just eliminate that temptation and not even have the phone in the room at all. And then kids are always like, oh, but I use it for my alarm clock. You can get an alarm clock at Target and just use an old school clock to (laughs) wake you up. You don't need your phone to do that. So we shouldn't have devices in the room at all. It's way too tempting. We want to get in the habit of not looking at our devices an hour before bedtime and then also if possible, and I get a lot of pushback on this too, but an hour after waking, we want to give our brains a chance to adjust to the day and to kind of set themselves without being bombarded with notifications and images and things going on in the world or, you know, times when we've been left out by friends. The not picking up your phone an hour after you wake up, I am going to start to do that because I use my phone as my alarm clock and that's what I do. As soon as I wake up, I open my phone and I usually check my email. Like how relaxing is that? (laughs) I know know. it's not because instantly you're turning your brain on. You haven't even had a chance to gradually face the day and you're already being bombarded with your to-do list. Yeah, I I keep my husband and we keep our phones. We don't have kids, but we we keep our phones in another room where they're charged overnight. We turn off our phones and iPads too at nighttime. So then that way in the morning, it gets rid of that temptation to even look at it and see what notifications are on there because that's just another barrier. It's like, oh, I'd have to actually turn it on. You know, I read in this one book, How to Break Up with Your Phone by Katherine Price, which is wonderful. But one of the tools that she recommends is actually putting a rubber band around your phone. And, you know, because that's just something that will make you stop and think before you log in. And, you know, we just always want to think what barriers can we put between us and our phone? Any extra step that's going to give us another opportunity to really catch ourselves and think like, okay, wait a minute, why am I picking this up? Do I really need to be doing this right now? So teaching kids how to do that. But one thing I think is really important to teach kids is the difference between active and passive use. Because with social media, Active use is when we're posting, when we are creating, when we are engaging with other people through social media. That's active and that's associated with better mental health on social media. So when we are actively using it, we tend to feel like less feelings of loneliness. We feel like we belong. We feel more connection versus passive use, which is when we are just mindlessly scrolling or lurking, you know, going to someone's page and just kind of reading through, you know, you find yourself on some post from like 2015, you're like, oh my gosh, how did I get here? That is associated with increased feelings of loneliness, increased depression, increased anxiety. So if we can even teach them the difference between those two uses so that they're more aware that they want to be using it in an active way versus a passive way. Do parents ever ask you what 
is the appropriate age for a child to actually have a cell phone and be on social media? You know, it's funny. They used to. I used to get that question all the time. I no longer do. And I think it's because it is so normal now for kids to get phones around the age of 12, especially in the the area where most of my clients live, because my office used to be in the, the suburbs of Chicago. So that's where most of my clients currently reside. And it's very normal in that area for kids to get phones for their 12th birthday. And parents no longer ask. It's just kind of a given. And they feel like if they don't let their kid have a phone at that age, now their kid is going to be missing out and they're going to miss out on, you know, friendships and play dates. And they just go ahead and do it. Like there must be a lot of like security or like things that parents can set up on a phone if their 12 year old has it so that they can't go like maybe it limits their screen time or it limits their time on a social media app. Are there tools that parents can put on the phones? Yeah, absolutely. There's all kinds of tools and apps that parents can have where, you know, they even can have, you know, they can shut off their kid's phone from their own phone, or they can see how long their kid has been on a screen, what apps they've been on. They can have it set up where, you know, a kid can't download an app without the parental permission. So the parent has to go in and actually enter a passcode. So there are all kinds of security measures that parents can put in place, which are great. But the thing is, when we just become so used to the using a phone as a cure for boredom, which ends up being what happens where people use a device as I'm bored, you know, I'm going to just scroll on whatever app it is I use, even if it's not social media, but if I play a game, you know, because I'm bored, because I I have to wait. We're not giving our brains a chance to tolerate discomfort, you know, because it's a little uncomfortable to be bored or it's a little, it's uncomfortable to feel a little anxious. And we're instead relying on our phones to get rid of that discomfort. We now are taking away that opportunity from kids to ever learn how to tolerate discomfort. And that is such an important skill to develop, to be able to tolerate discomfort. So I think it's a real, it's, we're we're neglecting them of that opportunity by throwing devices in their hands. Yeah. And I think this can be said for young kids too. Like I have a three-year-old and sometimes I will just intentionally like not try and solve his boredom or him like whining about something. I'll be like, especially on car rides, it's very easy to just give him a tablet and then he's happy and he plays his little dinosaur game. But sometimes I'm like, no, like, let's look outside. Let's like, oh, look at the sunshine. Because I think about that all the time. He's not going to know what it's like to be bored at all. And when I think about myself, when you just said that, I'm like, oh my God, it's so true. If I'm in line at the grocery store, I will instantly pull out my phone because I'm like, I, <laughs> what am I going to do? Just stand here? I know. It seems so archaic. Yeah. I'm just going to stand here and look around. And then you feel like the weirdo. I just did that the other day. We went to get coffees and I left my phone in the car. And I did it on purpose because I knew I didn't want to I didn't want to be looking at it while I waited in line. And I was the weirdo. I was the only person who was not staring down at their phone. And it was so interesting to just, you know, be in there. Everyone's in line. Everyone's just staring down at their phone. And you know what else it does is that it prevents you from making any kind of social contact with somebody else that's in the same situation, especially now with masks, like in COVID, everyone just looking down at their phone. And another thing that really bothers me about the phones, and I'm guilty of this, is people want to be recording everything all the time. And so I used to, like, I still, I love going to concerts. It's like my favorite thing. And once I started to use my phone all the time, I realized that I was so, like, distracted by trying to film what I was literally watching 
with my phone. Like I would be looking at the concert through my phone, trying to record it. And so I stopped doing that. Now I just leave my phone in my pocket and I might take like a 10 second video here and there. But I was like, Renee, like you're at the concert, like look at the person on stage instead of trying to film it and watching it through your phone. Yes. Oh my gosh. That's so funny. I know I used to do the same thing where I would be, yeah, filming something and then, yeah, you're watching it on your phone and it's just like, what am I doing? I'm missing like everything that's happening outside of my phone. And it's, you know, if aliens were to come down and just take a look at all of us staring at our devices, they would just think that we're, we're all zombies under some sort of mind control of these little, these little devices in our hands. I know. And it's like, you want to capture it but you could literally go home and search like Sean Mendez concert in YouTube and it'll pop up and you could watch the whole thing. Like you don't need to record it. One of the things I teach the teens I work with is to record now, but post later. So if you do want to take a recording or you do want to take a photo, do it really quick. And kind of like you said, where you're not actually, you're not concerned with trying to get the the perfect shot or anything. You're just giving yourself 10 seconds to do the recording, get the, the image. Then you're putting your phone back in your pocket. And then later when you're home, that's when you can post it. And now you've just extended the enjoyment of the activity because now you're still thinking about it later. You're creating a whole post around it. So you're going to just get further enjoyment as opposed to detaching yourself by trying to post it right there in the moment. Yeah, so true. Oh my goodness. Well, this has been super valuable information and it's honestly information that adults could apply to their own lives too, not just teenagers. So if people want to find out more about you and your practice and check you out on Instagram, where can they find you? Yeah, so you can um, follow me on Instagram. I'm at Dr. Melanie McNally. My website is destinationu.net. If you are interested, I do have a free guide for parents to help their teens with problem solving. And you can get that free guide at destinationu.net slash free guide. And then I do have a therapy boot camp for tweens and teens, which is an app-based therapy program for tweens and teens to build good mental health habits with daily exercises and activities. And my next cohort starts April 4th. So if anyone's interested in learning more about that or signing your teen up for therapy boot camp, you can do that at destinationu.net slash therapy hyphen bootcamp. Awesome. Thank you so much. I'll put the links to all those things in the episode notes. But yeah, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you for having me. Whoa.